0: Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report podcast. I'm your host, Vaga Maradian, joining you from the Surface Navy Association's Annual Symposium uh, just outside Washington, D.C. Our podcast is brought to you by Bell since 1935. Bell has been redefining flight. Learn more about its pioneering spirit at bellflight.com. Later in the program, our CAVAS ships team joins us for an analysis of three days of the Surface Navy's Annual Symposium. But first, it is my honor and pleasure now to welcome to the program Vice Admiral Bill Galinas, the commander of the Naval Sea Systems Command uh, that oversees the construction and maintenance of the U.S. Navy's entire fleet from aircraft carriers to small boats uh, and the organization that is core to American sea power. Uh, Sir, it's always an honor and pleasure having you on the program. Thanks so very much for joining us.
1: Yeah, Vago, the pleasure's mine, so thanks for the opportunity to be here this morning to talk about ship construction, fleet maintenance, and what we're doing in our shipyards, literally uh, across the country and around the world, so thanks for that.
0: Before we get started, Leonardo DRS and HII sponsor our global coverage, Fortress Information Security sponsors our weekly Cyber Report, General Atomics, Aeronautical Systems sponsors our strategy coverage, Ultra Intelligence and Communications sponsors our command and control coverage, and GE Aerospace sponsors our air warfare uh, coverage, and HII our naval coverage, and HII and GE Marine, a GE Aerospace company, are sponsoring our coverage of this annual surface Navy. Association's annual symposium sir thanks very much again for joining us we know how busy you are thanks for your time you know you run one of the nation's uh, largest industrial networks I think that uh, there are a lot of people who don't realize that Um, inflation has been a challenge across the board we talked to Chris Kastner on yesterday's program uh, HII's uh, president and CEO about the challenges that he faces Uh, you are running an organization that has manpower costs on the commercial side on the uh, on the public side as well where costs are growing what's the inflation impact and are you going to need Need some kind of inflation adjustment at the end of the day
1: yeah well, I think we uh, we saw a little bit of plus up in the uh, in the 23 budgets that are certainly going to help uh, but like others uh, we are seeing uh, inflation impacts in the material side um, but we're also seeing it really kind of on the personnel side as well and uh, you know the challenges that we're getting uh, you know uh, hiring and retaining Uh, our personnel, and that's that's in our field activities, our shipyards, our regional maintenance centers, um, as well as at our our headquarters command here in uh, the Washington, D.C. area. So, um, you know, a lot of opportunity out there for folks, uh, and with inflation, and, you know, looking for for other opportunities, it's something that we're working very hard um, to provide You know, training opportunities, career advancement opportunities, um, really kind of inside, you know, I'll say non-monetary outside of the budget process uh, that we can to uh, recruit and retain our workforce.
0: Um, How much of this is a money problem? How much of this is an interest problem? Um, On the one hand, uh, Chris yesterday uh, told us, look, you know, folks are taking those overtime hours, more people are attracted in order to do it, but in order uh, to keep that, you've got to pay people. Um, And commercial shipyards have an ability to pay more, for example, than government shipyards. Where are you on your... Because almost everything you do, the limiting factor, for example, is skilled trades on welders, for example. What are some of the things you're doing to make sure that you have that uh, that skill set in order to be able to do what's necessary, both on the new construction side and private yards, but also on maintenance, both on the government and the commercial side?
1: Yeah, hands down, uh, we are in that competition for talent, as you as you talk about specifically, uh, you know, and we'll talk about the trade specifically. Um, the uh, two, two things in, in particular that we're doing with our trade so um, we are looking at the pay scales for our wage grade employees so these are our mechanics inside of the inside of the shipyards to adjust those pay scales and we're working with Navy leadership right now to, to do that. Um, there is a realization across the force that you know, we need, we need to do that. And if you think about the areas where our shipyards are located, right, um, Portsmouth, New Hampshire, Puget Sound, Washington, uh, Pearl Harbor, Hawaii, right, those are those are not the low-cost areas uh, to, to live. And so, uh, you know, we ha- we owe it to, to our workforce, okay, uh, the folks that we need to maintain our ships, um, you know, to, to provide them. a um, a a good a good wage you know that they can support their families and uh, and be successful so that's number one so there is a uh, some work going on on the pay scale for our wage grade employees the the second thing that we're doing is we have implemented what we call expert tradesmen uh, inside our shipyard so what this does is it actually uh, again for our wage grade for our mechanics it provides um, a couple of higher level pay scales pay grades um, to allow them to advance uh, to a higher level of qualification, a higher level of experience, and increased compensation to go along with that.
0: Is there a, a a price? How much of this is a price, a cost issue? Right. I mean, is it that you're running out of money or you're running out of people at the end of the day on this?
1: No, I would say, um, you know, we're not running out of people. We're we're, we're doing okay right now. But you know, if, if you look further down the road, if we don't start making changes now. Uh, we won't be in a good place as we go further that said we we are seeing some near-term challenges um, in terms of in terms of trades okay and it it varies from yard to yard depending on uh, on the part of the country that we're in Um, you know we're also kind of again taking a step back from the trade piece, but we're also seeing some of those challenges uh, in, our, in our technical uh, areas, in, in our engineering areas, okay? Uh, mechanical engineers, electrical engineers, naval architects, you know, those, those skill sets are, are hard to come by. And if you, if you look across the Naval Sea Systems Command, um, and take even a broader look at this, um, you know, that's, that's a challenge. I think the competition for talent and the people part of this is our biggest strategic challenge going forward. And if if we don't address that now um, and we've got a a specific uh, team in place at at the headquarters level that has brought in folks from our field activities to really look at our our overall human capital strategy, if you will, uh, to really retain these folks.
0: Is this, an uh, uh, not, uh, not to delay us? because there are many other questions I want to ask, but that's very intriguing. Do we need to have some sort of a national approach uh, to this? I mean, this has gone to some conversations down on the show floor. Well, you know, our generation had shop class, for example, and we might have done a little bit of welding or steel work or more stuff that some kids today don't have. Um, it, 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 do we need to have some sort of a more national approach? Because industry after industry is facing a very similar challenge in terms of these kind of skill sets.
1: Yeah, well, that's a great question. And hands down I would tell you the answer to that is yes okay um, you know for, for the um, for a period of time we have uh, I'll say downplayed the, um, the importance of, of, of the trades okay and uh, and, and what uh, that part of our uh, uh, you know our, our population does for our country um, and I'm just not talking about in shipyards but the, the broader context um, but specifically back to you know ship construction, Ship repair. Uh, literally every shipyard, uh, the leadership of all the shipyards that I work with and talk with, uh, we're, we're all challenged from the personnel perspective to get um, you know people inside the shipyard. And the other thing too is, you know, you're not seeing um, even the new hires don't bring with them maybe the same experience level that we saw, you know, five, 10 years ago, okay? So, um, and I'm not saying that that's bad, it's just different. And, and so we need to think differently about this and how we, um, how we recruit these people, how we train them, and then more, most importantly, how we retain them once we get them on board and through the training program. Um, Supply
0: chain is a a challenge uh, for everybody. Chris Kastner of HII yesterday told us the problem is not as bad today as it was, for example, a year ago. Um, You're buying more types of things uh, from uh, small company products to big company products, sustaining ships that some of them are 50 years old. Um, Walk us through what the supply chain looks like and your transition from just in time to just in case, which uh, almost everybody in the military sphere is looking at.
1: Yeah, you know, so where we're seeing some of the supply chain uh, challenges is really uh, on a couple of our specific ship classes. Okay, And parts, uh, uh, you know, if if we need a part quickly and we don't have that part either in the supply system or available at a vendor or a uh, an OEM, uh, you know, original equipment manufacturer, um, that that can be a challenge for us. And so we're we're what we're what we are working on um, is really how how far out can we forecast. Our demand for some of these parts further out, and and so we're, that's that's an effort that we're we're working on. Um, you know, there's also a cost to that, as you indicated, with the with the inflation piece. Uh, I think for the most part, we've been able to uh, to keep up with that, um, but it's something we'll need to continue to address.
0: Um, let me uh, take you to uh, what, do big data additive, right, I mean, do all of these newer technologies actually work for the kind of parts that you need to manufacture, or is that still a couple of years out in terms of, because there is this, there is a revolution in manufacturing, but sometimes the kind of things you need are up at operating, type, I mean, you still need like sort of old-fashioned machining skills yeah. for
1: them. Yeah, no, the, uh, great question. And, and so um, so let me address the data analytics piece, because we are using data analytics um, in a number of areas across our, our enterprise. Um, we specifically a, have a, uh, a program out there that really does uh, you know, try to forecast material that is gonna be required um, by a specific platform, whether it's a submarine or a surface ship, uh, you know, based on historical usage rates and uh, failure rates, things of that nature. So so that we are using that right now. Again, I, I talked about trying to predict and forecast parts requirements further out. That's one of the the uh, methods that we're using to, to go ahead and do that. Um, so that's a, that's a key part of it. In terms of the other part, as you were asking the question, um, is uh, additive manufacturing capabilities, okay? And that is a significant effort that we're involved in right now, uh, teaming with industry as well as some of the work that we're doing uh, with other uh, Navy system commands to really advance our, our additive manufacturing capability. Um, where I think we're, we're just not quite there yet is being able to produce complex parts at scale. So if it's a, uh, a one of part or something, we can, we can work our way through that, uh, but being able to produce parts at scale I think is, is currently a little bit of our challenge.
0: Um, Let me take you uh, to a wartime uh, lesson before we get to contracting and how to build better ships for the future, as well as shipyard uh, optimization. Uh, Russia's war on Ukraine is seen as a ground conflict, but it's had a very significant naval uh, component to it. Obviously, the flagship of the Black Sea Fleet was sunk, the Moskva. Hondo Gertz started the uh, wartime acquisition sustainment program, WASP, uh, in order to sort of build some resilience into the system, require program managers to sort of think about that wartime component of it. Uh, And we've talked about for years, right, once the shooting starts, it becomes a different ball game. And we saw even with two uh, crash collision damaged ships, it took two years to get out of the yard. In World War II. There were pretty seriously damaged ships that were being regenerated quickly. Talk to us a little bit about the lessons you're drawing as the NAFC from this conflict, and how that's shaping what your planning looks like, what you're telling your PEOS and across the force to get them ready um, for the worst before the worst ever arrives.
1: Yeah. So just a couple of things in that. So certainly, uh, you know, within the uh, within the Naval Sea Systems Command, we have an organizational construct in place uh, to respond quickly. Uh, uh... should we have an accident like a collision or a grounding or something like that uh... the Bonholm shard fire that happened a few years ago uh... regrettably is when we exercised that capability fairly significantly uh... over an extended period of time and by that i mean a period of about ten days as we were coming through that event um, the question we've been asking ourselves is hey what if we had um, multiple events like that in a relatively short period of time how would we respond so um, we've conducted a couple of uh exercises last year on that uh... where we've we've actually um, in fact we used the the chard uh... as part of that is, is uh... we were towing her to the uh... to the breakup yard down in texas we uh... we actually sent a team out on her and did some some real-time battle damage assessment battle damage repair um... training with the team to allow them to get on board a ship that had been damaged and to make an assessment, and then maybe conduct some some uh, some voyage type repairs. Uh, we've also uh, conducted some other events like that as part of the uh, the Rim of the Pacific exercise that was held uh, uh, in Pearl Harbor uh, last year, and and so we've, we're learning from that. Uh, also teaming with. Uh, with Pack Fleet and some of the work that they're doing, uh, and, and really kind of starting to integrate with their uh, with their their plans on on a, on a more holistic uh, perspective. The other thing, so they, we're, we've kind of been in this, I'll say, this crawl stage a little bit. I, I feel like we're going to start to walk this year as we've uh, stood up within NAVC a wartime readiness directorate uh, headed up by a flag officer that we we brought on board. And this individual has been charged with really taking a more of a holistic look across the organization, Um, not just battle damage assessment, battle damage repair, um, but really how would we contract? So you mentioned WASP, right, for ship repairs, right? So we have a um, leveraging some of the work that we do in our diving and salvage organization, and essentially the worldwide nine one one contract that they have. Should they need to get services on? contract very quickly we have a mechanism to do that Um, so how would we kind of scale that you know to include battle damage ships if we if we needed to do that so you know it's not just the production work the assessment and the repair work Uh, there's a contracting element of this um, and then uh, you know within the within the peos as you mentioned right so you know vessels that we have in shipyards what would we do uh, maybe with ships that were nearing the end of the construction phase and could we quickly deploy them to the to the fleet so we're working our way through that and um, you know I, I think we're we'll see more of that as we get into 2023 um, that, that's going to be very interesting and would love to uh,
0: and who's the flag officer who's heading that for you
1: uh, it's rear Admiral Bob Dodson is the individual uh, that we've tagged to uh, lead that effort for us.
0: You mentioned uh, contracting. Um, Contracting uh, has uh, come up. Uh, Both uh, the CNO, Admiral Gilday, as well as Admiral Caudill, uh, the Fleet Forces Commander, have sort of uh, criticized the industry for not moving fast enough. But many of the folks on the show floor, whether they're in industry or in uh, navy blue, uh, have said, look, if you have the right kind of contract, you can incentivize speed. Mm -hmm. If you have everybody on fixed price contracts uh, that aren't thoughtful enough, and then there are a lot of change orders, things are going to move very, very slowly. From your standpoint, how do you use contracts to better incentivize speed? Because one of the biggest challenges we have is getting ships out there fast enough, whether they're coming out of their availabilities, uh, a little bit less so on new construction, but it's a challenge, Constellation, running a little bit late as uh, talks have gone back and forth. Talk to us about how you can use contracts to get the whole ball moving faster to your satisfaction, your boss's satisfaction in industries.
1: Yeah. So just a couple of thoughts there so you know c- contract clearly is the mechanism by which we communicate with the industry and what we want them to do right um it's also a mechanism by which we balance risk between the government and and industry um, a, a big part of that balancing act is the requirements and so where you have stable requirements um you know you can use a fixed price type of contract okay and there are a number of incentives that we can we can put in place um, under under fixed price contracts, um, where your requirements maybe are not as stable, okay, um, we would use a cost type contract for that. Um, and there's also ways to incentivize speed and schedule on those type of contracts through incentive fees or, or, or things like that. Um, so both of the t- those two basic contracting um, philosophies or constructs, if you will. Um, can be used to incentivize speed uh, where i think we've got some challenges right now uh, and i'll just talk specifically about the ship maintenance area um, we we use fixed price contracts typically um, you know our requirements when we bring a ship into a, a private yard now to to, to do a, a maintenance availability um, maybe not as stable as we would like um, so i think you know we need to think through We've been in this environment now for about five years or so, uh, maybe a little bit more. Uh, how are we rolling some of those lessons learned into maybe make a, a modification? Again, you know, making sure we have the right balance in terms of risk, um, but also an opportunity uh, to hold industry, I'll say, accountable. And I mean that in a, in a positive and a negative way, right? So when they do, you know, and when they exceed the contract requirements, there's an opportunity for them to earn more fee, um, when they don't meet the contract requirements, you know, there's an opportunity for the Navy to maybe recoup some of that fee. So, you know, that works both ways. So when I talk about the balancing of, of risk in, in contracts, it's, um, you know, both in a positive and a, and a negative.
0: Uh, put put the tank repair in. If you do the tank repair, they keep the money. If they don't do the tank repair, they give you back the money, that's as right. opposed to negotiating it out while the ship is in the dock. Uh, that's,
1: that's, that's exactly right. That's exactly right. And, you know, too often... Uh, you know, one of the biggest uh, detriments or one of the biggest challenges to getting ships out of the yards on time is the amount of unplanned work that we push into an availability. OK, um, whether that's in the private sector or the public sector. Part of this is knowing the condition of the ship up front. So that's getting the uh, the right pre availability inspections and tests done so we can define the work package. Um but you know invariably on any ship class there's parts of the ship that you can inspect until you get the ship in the yard and you start taking things apart right but we know we've got enough historical um you know knowledge to know where those challenge areas are and we should to your point you know we should include that as part of the contract if that work doesn't manifest itself we can back that out but we maintain schedule Uh, let me
0: ask you a capacity question something you spend about 24 hours a day uh, thinking about. Uh, you know, and we've talked about Shipyard uh, optimization uh, plan. Your predecessor was working that, Tom Moore. Uh, it was great to see him uh, down uh, downstairs. He's with HII now. Um, walk us through all the things that are happening. We're short of capacity both on the commercial side of things, Uh, nuclear submarine productions running between 1.6, 1.8, we're not yet at 2, and Columbia is not yet uh, at uh, full rate. You have that challenge on the maintenance side, not just on the nuclear shipyards, Mm -hmm. uh, but even uh, the private yards don't have the capacity. Walk us through what has to happen and what has to happen faster because if I was sitting in China and looking at us, I'd think, wow, they can't fix their ships fast enough. Hmm, I might smell opportunity.
1: Yeah, Um, so I I think you're exactly right. We do not have the capacity that we need in different areas, okay? Um, Let me start with the the ship maintenance side. And and there's a number of ways to get after the capacity problem, right? And so um, when I think about it, um, you know, you think about how do you address capacity across the spectrum of options, right? So, on one end of the, the the option, or one end of the spectrum, is a new shipyard, clearly, right? I mean, you just you just bring on a whole new shipyard, you find the workforce, you find you know the tooling and everything that you need. On the on the other end of the spectrum, in my mind, is getting good at meeting the commitments that you made today, and um, and then there's elements along the way, right? So by that, what I mean is. Uh, you know, there's. Uh, I think there's opportunity to uh, to leverage industry. Okay, um, you know, some of the work that we're doing in our public yards, for example, is there some of that work that can be outsourced to industry? Um, do we increase the workforce in terms of the size, the experience level? You know, that takes time. That doesn't happen overnight. Um, and then the other piece is just, do you improve your processes? Right. So, so we've got we've got efforts going on across different parts of that spectrum right now. To improve that that capacity, um, we're also, uh, you know, working through really kind of studying where the capacity shortfalls are, um, and then we'll go back to Navy leadership with some recommendations on how to improve that.
0: Um, we've we've got about a five, a five minutes left, but just an intermediate question before I uh, get to my last two, which is the Navy has been improving training for sailors one of the big challenges was that a lot of this schooling the, the assumption was made that industry will be able to support this stuff and now we're starting to train sailors to do the work that they did in your generation when they were coming into the Navy and going through the school process um, how much of this is improving trailing training for sailors so that they can do some of this work to reduce what has to be done in the shipyard and then second does it make sense to bring back tenders uh, for example we've got a lot of tenders our mutual friend Chris Cavis and the co-host of our Cavus Ships podcast makes that point. We do have some infrastructure that could be deployed in order to help us out on this. Just real quick on both of those, or you know, do you see opportunity there?
1: Yeah, so the um, so uh, self-sustainment opportunities, right? So training our sailors um, is a big focus for our fleet commanders, both our fleet commanders at Fleet Forces as well as Pack Fleet um, and how we improve that training. One of the... Um, the, a key program that we have in in place right now is our uh, our Navy afloat maintenance training system, the NAMPS program. If you've heard of that, right? Um, and this is really where we send sailors to our regional maintenance centers um, to conduct intermediate level maintenance. So this is a level above what they would normally do on board the ship um and it's in the technical trades it's it's pipe fitting it's it's uh motor rewind it's pump overhaul it's valve work uh gas turbine work diesels so it crosses a number of different areas um that we send the sailors you know for a couple years to the the regional maintenance center they get a shore duty out of it but they're actually working in the rate to expand their technical knowledge of the equipment that they would be working on when they go back to a ship so that's probably our, our our premier program right now to to really um, get after that. We are also leveraging, um, in fact I was just talking with the folks at, uh, at Fairbanks Morse on some of the work that they're doing. They're, Fairbanks is opening a new training facility down in Norfolk Virginia in a fleet concentration area okay. Um, they are willing to open that up to the Navy for us to, to send some of our sailors through on diesel engine maintenance, okay So there are OEM level uh, training opportunities I think that, that are out there that we can avail ourselves to.
0: Uh, two uh, lightning round uh, questions. Uh, first, uh, Congress uh, frustrated with changing Navy plans uh, is uh, setting up a Navy commission uh, in order to shape what that future fleet looks like. Uh, no matter whether Congress is setting numbers or the Navy is setting numbers, you're the integral piece of that. What's going to be your voice on this commission you know, if, if, if the Congress is going to take the reins? What's the kind of input and what's the mechanism to get your voice at the table? Because at the end of the day, whether you're building or sustaining them, it doesn't happen. Magic doesn't happen without you.
1: Well, you know, the the, the CNO staff at OPNAV will set the requirements in terms of the types and the number of ships that we need. So that that will all be at the um, at the OPNAV level to set the requirements. Our involvement will be uh, uh, probably from an industrial base capacity perspective on uh, you know how for the fleet that the, that the nation can can afford or that we need, um, how would we actually construct that fleet? How would we design and construct that fleet? That would probably be our, uh, our part of the, the input.
0: And, and your uh, recommendation to Fred Pyle is go easy on the requirements so that we can make sure we can execute it.
1: Well, I think we need to, at least right now, we, we need to make sure um that we have the industrial base to support this and you know and that's just not just on the ship construction side there's a design element of this as well and um you know as we start thinking about the new programs coming down the way and how do we continue to um you know build and mature our design base both in 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 the, the public sector side within the navy as well as our private sector shipyards
2: uh,
0: last question. Um, a lot of experience gained, obviously, in the Ford. Uh, you've gained valuable lessons in Flight 3 and the littoral combat ship. Uh, and while there's some frustration, Constellation is not moving faster, there are those who say, actually, no, the Navy is trying to get this right. Make sure that the contractor and the Navy are on the same page, cut steel, move faster, go slower to move faster, I think, is, is how you have put it. What are some of the lessons learned, and how are those going to be manifest or are being manifest in Constellation, the new cruiser, the new destroyer, the new
1: submarine? Because there's a lot of work coming down the road. Yeah. Hey. So first off, let me tell you on, on the Ford class. Um, I think over the last two years, the team has done a tremendous job. Right. So we've uh, we've completed weapons elevators. We've successfully tested the catapults. Um, you know the the um, the operation of the ship has really been, been tested and wrung out uh, by the fleet. Okay, so we've got the ship in the hands of the operator. Uh, we've gone through shock trials very successfully, um, and the ship just completed a very successful initial uh, deployment here last, last fall. So, you know, I think Ford is well on its way, and frankly, that's going to be a game changing platform. Um, on the frigate piece, uh, you know, a lot of risk. Part of the contracting acquisition strategy um, was an evolving design um you know using the italian uh, from frigate design okay um, we've certainly modified that some to include u.s requirements um u.s vendors and equipment and system um but the team is is making very good progress on that and we were able to uh you know we came through the design phase of that uh, last year um and uh we, we've got the first uh, units in construction uh, up at uh, the Finnico and Terry Marine in, in Marinette, Wisconsin. The, um, you know, but I tell you that's going to be a heavy lift for the team, right? And, and again, you know, back to maybe our initial part of the discussion, um, it's about the people part, right? You need people to build it, you need people to test it and then, and then get that ship delivered. And that's both on, on the Navy and, and industry side. And uh, you know right now the, uh, the shipyards meeting, their hiring requirements. Um, I feel like we've got a good team in place. Uh, but, you know, we are just in the very early stages of that design, and so where we need to be ready is to kind of, I'll say, catch that ship when it goes into the water and we start that system activation and test, and that's, that's when it's really, you know, that, that's when it get to be, uh, be tough.
0: And how do these lessons shape the destroyer, the new cruiser, uh, and we're already looking at SSNX down the road as well. How do all of these lessons shape how we do those programs better? Even light amphibious warship, which we just heard from the uh, expeditionary warfare
1: boss. Yeah, I think the big thing is, uh, you know, it's, it's an evolving design process as opposed to a, a um, I'll say, a radical change, right? So if you think about DDG-1000, all of the new technologies that went into that ship from the hull form to the combat system, to the control system, to the, the the propulsion system, the weapon system, I mean everything on that ship was new, right? Uh, that was a lot of risk that program took on, okay? And we've learned a lot from that. Now, you know, the three ships that we have in the fleet, we're gonna, we're gonna really be able to, and we have taken a lot of lessons learned off of that. And I think you're gonna see those lessons get rolled into DDGX, which will be a, a new design. Um, you know, and where we were used on the frigate, we kind of used the parent design process that I talked about. You know, DDGX, the, the, the platform that we need uh, to support the war fighting requirements doesn't really exist, so it will be a new design. Um, but there are other platforms that are out there that we can leverage, design lessons learned from uh, that will certainly go into DDGX.
0: Admiral Galinas, it's always an honor and pleasure. Thank you for being so generous with your time, Uh, and I have to just say I I admire uh, the organization. It's one of the world's truly great uh, organizations and something absolutely critical to American Sea Power. Uh, Thanks to you and the team for everything uh, they do, including Rory.
1: Yes, sir. Well, thank you. I uh, appreciate the opportunity. It's a great team, and they do a lot of good work for us. Thank you.
0: And joining us now are uh, some of the nation's most thoughtful naval commentators, the co hosts of our Cavus Ships podcast, uh, our contributor, uh, our contributing editor, Christopher P. Cavus, uh, and our producer, Chris Cervello, who each week clear the fog on naval and maritime matters. Uh, guys, thanks very much for joining us after what has been a very busy three days at Surface Navy Association. It's
2: pretty fun to be here. Pretty good to see people again, too. Uh, indeed, and I'm glad you got a haircut.
3: Yeah, that's always nice. Um, it's been a good week. Uh, we heard a lot. I'm not sure that we heard everything that we had hoped to hear, but uh, look forward to chatting about it.
0: Canvas, uh we'll start off with you. Uh, the Uh, We heard from the Secretary of the Navy, we heard uh, from the Chief of Naval Operations, Admiral Mike Gilday, as you heard. We heard from Admiral Cottle, uh, the Fleet Force's uh, commander, as well as others. Uh, We were, I joined you guys on capital ships last week where we uh, talked about uh, the gag order uh, that Secretary del Toro has put out. And it looks like the Navy Secretary, uh, whom we heard from also, uh, may or may not have gotten himself into a little bit of hot water with his comment uh, about Ukraine. And if we do this for another six months, Uh, you know, the the United States Navy uh, is going to be in bad shape uh, as well. There are those within the Pentagon who say, well, look, I mean, the rate of aid we're giving to the Ukrainians uh, puts us uh, in problematic terrain. Uh, There are others who say, hey, look, the Pentagon's now been dealing with this for 10 months and could be surging capacity and moving more quickly. How did you interpret that uh, comment as somebody who was in the room when he made it?
2: Well, you know, this this, this is uh, both Secretary uh, del Toro And Fleet Forces Commander Admiral Cottle uh, made references to to Ukraine. Uh, It wasn't always in their address either. It was also responses to questions from the audience. But they both pretty much gave people the impression that they were saying at some point, six months in one case, and something like that, That's
0: right. Second, 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 said saying if this goes on another six months, it's the U.S. Navy that's going to need help.
2: Right. And of course, a lot of people went like, whoa, wow, what's what's that about? Starting off, remember, this is a professional audience in the room. These aren't this isn't the Rotary Club from Wisconsin and people have are paying some attention. So most people are aware that this is not a naval war going on in Ukraine or the Black Sea, for that matter. It's it's a land war. So the, the the drawdown is mostly from land warfare stocks, not from sea warfare. So it's not not really an acute issue for the U.S. Navy. It um, also sort of it does. There was no discussion in the in there either. No nuance about you know fight them over there or fight them here. Sort of thing in the past,
0: which which he did uh, very eloquently do, if I may say, at Navy League last year, where he made that direct yeah. uh, direct link. I mean, that was a terrific speech. Not trying to butter the uh... secnava
2: No, but it's. I mean, it, it it's. I'm sorry, you, you fight him there, fight him here. We're still fighting him, and uh, you know that wasn't part of the discussion. I I didn't hear any of that anyway. Um, you didn't hear anything of that, did you, Chris? Well.
3: No, I, I didn't. And, you know, it's it's funny because I think that talking to friends on the Hill and talking to friends that work in and around the White House, th- that talking point, fight them over there or fight them over here, seems to have fallen away. And there's a lot of concern that maybe DOD isn't all in on this, uh, you know, Ukraine effort and, and maybe for good reason. Right. DOD, I think, looks at this and says, um, instead of looking at it as, hey, a fight for democracy and, and linking all of these, what's going on in Ukraine and linking it to what potentially could go on in the Pacific and making it one effort, they have very much viewed this as two distinct efforts. And so there's a lot of people in the Pentagon that view you know, it as a zero-sum game, that everything you do or give to uh, the Ukrainians takes away from our effort that we could potentially use for the Chinese. Then you have Admiral Cottle, then you have the secretary say what they said today, which is is actually true? I mean, we we are going to the same industrial base and asking them to do more for both Ukraine and potentially for the Pacific. Um, they just didn't do a very good job of eloquently explaining that. And then, so if you're in the White House, you're going, "Hey, I I knew it. Those guys weren't in, to, in in on it. I knew it. They, you know, they were holding back." And so it 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 sort of confirms their worst fears. And what you have is is really a PR mess that you didn't need to have. Right? The secretary's message should have been, I need more from industry. Coddle's message should have been, I need more from industry. Not to slap them around. Um, And the last thing I'll say, the CNO has been all about get real, get better. Well, this week, I'll give the Navy credit, they got real, but there was no discussion about how to get better, how to get better together, how to come up with a way that incorporates congressional funding lines, uh, incorporates requirements and budget, budget submissions from the Navy, and has a real view of what industry needs and wants.
0: Uh, And uh, to that point, right, the Navy controls contracting. So when the CNO, Admiral Cottle, or anybody else complains, well, these things aren't moving fast enough, you could look at contractual mechanisms uh, in order to help that uh, process along. Although I will say, Chris, I think that there has been a change because that attitude in the Pentagon of the more we help Ukraine, the less we're getting ready for China. There are those senior leaders who've told me, look, we, we really understand now why these two fights are linked, which makes this a little bit discordant uh, in the minds of some. What are some of the other things, Chris, well, that you it's, picked it's, up it's, it's, and are, are, are talk worthy?
2: Well, Just to sort of finish this thread. Um, so when the when uh, uh, the secretary and Admiral Caudill made these comments, people just began tweeting them rapidly. So within minutes it's out there in the in the minute Twitter Twitter fear, it's Twitter sphere. And people It is
0: a Twitter fear uh, too, Twitter, but
2: anyway. fear of Twitter, we're all afraid. We're all very afraid. Be but the
0: be not afraid, Chris. I'm sorry. Go on.
2: Within minutes, uh, there's blowback from the hill. So reporters who were tweeting this, did, did these things were getting blasted, we're getting bombed with, with instant queries from the Hill who were also sending this stuff off to, to, to sing similar queries off to official sources. So unusually both the Secretary and Admiral Caudle um, clarified their remarks. Uh for this for this uh, venue, that's that that that's pretty unusual. That doesn't happen all the time. And they both did it. They both had to come out what what we meant to say or what we did say, or what we actually said, whatever. And, what
0: we meant to say,
2: and, and 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 now there's the whole you know mis, the, the, this this misinterpretation. Well, I didn't say that. Well, actually, you did. I recorded it. So, that 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 sort of discourse has definitely been going on. Admiral McConnell sort of uh, today, actually, the, the day after the remarks, uh, just put out a statement where he. He clarified his position on, on on Ukraine. At no point did Admiral Caudle I'm reading from it now, at no point did Admiral Caudle say our nation would need to make a choice between arming our Navy or supporting Ukrainian forces in their fight against Russia. But he said, they said, of course, we're going to help Ukraine deliver the stuff they need so they can conduct that conflict. Well, that wasn't all he said, but be that as it may. But he also doubled down in, in this clarification on remarks about industry. And, the, you know, the the pointing the finger at industry, you need to do better, we need more from industry, has been going on for a while. Industry's reaction to this has pretty much not been positive. Right. It's, it's been perplexity. And, well, it is. And, and for one thing, just saying industry writ large, right. well, that's a pretty broad stroke, kids. And, you know, your, your buckshot is hitting an awful lot of people that are, should not be in the line of fire. Um, probably a whole lot more. And I mean, here again, he says it doubled down on it. This is his, this is clarification. The nation's defense industry partners are not hitting the mark and should be held accountable to contracts made with the Navy and make deliveries on time. That's great. However, the Navy has a finger in those pies at every single step of the way. There's an awful lot of government-furnished equipment that comes with an awful lot of those programs that the government is responsible for, for delivering, that the government is responsible for getting on time. To say in broad strokes, you need to do this, well, okay, maybe you too, join in, let's all get together. But there's no expression of that. It's not a together thing. The other part of this is that, you know, okay, demand is rising. We have, we have this issue with, 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 with the drawdown of arms to Ukraine. Well, this is what people have been saying for a long time. This is demand. We have to be ready when the demand is there. Guess what? The demand is here now. This is It
0: was what. in February.
2: It, it began in February. It is going on. This is not going to end. This is what people have been talking about in the abstract for a long, long, long time. And it's here. It's been here. It ain't going away. Adjust your thinking.
0: Uh, well... Um, I'm going I'm to say, right, uh, one person has been saying that when he was in office the first time, and the second time was uh, uh, now Air Force Secretary Frank Kendall, we have to be prepared for a long war. The next war might not be a short one, and maybe a prolonged one uh, that taxes industrial capacity, although we did, Chris, uh, at the top of the show hear from Admiral uh, Galinas. Uh, The NAVC, who did say, "Look, we we've got to do a better job. We've got to work together uh, in order to try to get this work done and do better contracting."
2: At the end of the day, to get better closer to to it too, than 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 a fleet forces operational commander, right, and a secretary of the Navy who should not be the nation's chief acquisition, the Navy's chief acquisition official,
0: even if he had, they uh, don't have one. Correct. Well, you know, Nick Nick Gerton. Dr. Girton would be great uh, to have in that job, Only but we can-
2: just now renominated, and not even nominated anyway until November fifteenth. So no particular alacrity going on with that entire position.
0: Uh, Chris, I would love to have this roundtable go on a bit longer, but unfortunately we're running out of time. Uh, bring us home on other uh, takeaways over uh, the course of the last three days, things that jumped out at you and the audience should bear in mind.
3: So let me give you the, the glass half full view, okay? Um, I thought it was great that the SWO boss started off by, by talking about 75 surface ships ready for tasking every day. The surface Navy's been working very hard on that. There's a lot of uh, effort that, you know, it takes a village to get a ship ready and to be, um, you, you know, mission taskable. And so that, uh, you know, good on him for, for uh, um, announcing that. Good on him for sending the message to everybody that's involved in that village that they need to continue to do that work because um, those ships are going to be needed on, on a moment's notice. So that that's a plus there. The other thing that I would say, just to wrap this whole thing up, is I felt it this over these three days that the entire ecosystem knows that we are on the verge of either being behind or are behind and that we all need to do better, right? So again, if that's what the secretary was trying to convey, if that's what Cottle was trying to convey, um, you you hear it, you heard it from uh, Chris Castron yesterday, you heard it from Admiral Galinas at at the top of the show, everybody that I talk to knows that we are behind in terms of preparing for the Chinese, that we've learned a lot of lessons from Ukraine. So I guess that's a plus, that the, the system is slowly starting to move towards a um, adversary footing uh, and that everybody needs to do better. So hopefully that continues as we hit some of these shows throughout the year. Um, but it also has to be reflected in a cultural change on the
0: waterfront and elsewhere. A lot of the best are uh, unfortunately being relieved of their commands and that and that sends a very negative signal as we discussed last week. Chris, any uh, last points as we wrap up.
2: No, other than this, you know, it is nice to see this show back uh, after the pandemic. Last year was they did they did do it a live event a year ago. It was still pretty much impacted by the. It was not a good time for the pandemic around here in D.C. Uh, this is this is better this year. It is a real shame that the NAVC program briefs, which are a major factor of this show and why a lot of people travel a long way to be here, uh, didn't show up. They is they they weren't here. There was not one significant program brief from the Naval Sea Systems Command last year. They had 16 briefs this year. They had six, and none were of any particular consequence in terms of major programs. So we didn't hear about the new Flight Three destroyer. We'd have no idea what the update is about that. It just went to sea on trials. Something's been happening. Uh, that's a that that is a big deal, and that's the nation's service combatant for the next decade. That's the only the only one they're going to be building. Uh, We'd have not or didn't get an upgrade on uh, frigate. On on that program, we didn't get an upgrade on uh, update on the DDG 1000 program. There's a major program now to upgrade all three of those ships. Uh, That's a new contract, new shipyard, uh, new plans. I don't know what's going on. The secretary said that. Oh no, everybody's here doing briefs. Nobody here was doing any briefs, and that and that is really too bad. They really only come. There's only two opportunities a year for that sort of information. One is this, Surface Navy Association. The other one is Sea Airspace, which this year is in early April. I certainly hope that between now and early April, a better idea about how to to put this information out there is put forth, and we get a lot more substance from the Navy in April.
0: As uh, they say from your mouth, to God's ears, Chris. Gentlemen, uh, thanks very much. Absolute pleasure, everybody. Uh, the, these uh, two guys have been going daily uh, for the last couple of days, so certainly tune in and obviously tune in uh, to the upcoming show with uh, recap and other uh, thoughts from these two august gentlemen. Chris, thanks very much.
2: Thanks, Vago. Always, always great.
0: Chris, thank you. Thank you.